The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. Jesus sat across from the collection box for the temple treasury and observed how the crowd gave their money. Many rich people were throwing in lots of money. One poor widow came forward and put in two small copper coins, worth just a penny. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I assure you that this poor widow has put in more than everyone who's been putting money in the treasury. All of them are giving out of their spare change. But she, from her hopeless poverty, has given everything she had, even what she needed to live on. This is the word in black and red. And welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I'm your host, Michael Belong, the wise old llama, and be joined today by the wonderful Pastor Sarah. Y'all know the amazing things that she is up to all over the place. If you are not following her on TikTok, I would highly recommend you go over there and follow Disorganized dot religion. It is just fantastic, and I laugh every time. So, But we have a wonderful, uh, strange little bit of the Bible that doesn't get preached on very often, and so we're going to dive right on in to Genesis 26. When a famine gripped the land, a different one from the first famine that occurred in Abraham's time, Isaac set out from Gerar and toward King Abimelech of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to him and said, Don't go down to Egypt. But settle temporarily in the land that I will show you. Stay in this land as an immigrant, and I will be with you and bless you, because I will give you all of these lands to you and your descendants. I will keep my word, which I gave to your father Abraham. I will give you as many descendants as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all of these lands. All of the nations of the earth will be blessed because of your descendants. I will do this because Abraham obeyed me and kept my orders, my commandments, my statutes, and my instructions. So Isaac lived in Gerar. When the man who lived there asked about his wife, he said, she's my sister, because he was afraid to say my wife, thinking, the men who live there will kill me for Rebekah, because she's very beautiful. After Isaac had lived there for some time, the Philistines king Abimelech looked out his window and saw Isaac laughing together with his wife Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she's your wife, isn't she? How could you say she's my sister? Isaac responded, because I thought I might be killed because of her. Abimelech said, what are you trying to do to us? Before long, one of the people would have slept with your wife, and you would have made us guilty. Abimelech gave orders to all of the people. Anyone who touches this man or his wife will be put to death. Isaac planted grain in that land and reaped 100 shirim that year because the Lord had blessed him. Isaac grew richer and richer until he was extremely wealthy. He had livestock, both flocks and cattle and many servants. As a result, the Philistines envied him. The Philistines closed up and filled the dirt of all the wells that his father's servant had dug during his father Abraham's lifetime. Abimelech said to Isaac, Move away from us, because you have become too powerful among us. So Isaac moved away from there, camped at the valley of Gerar, and lived there. Isaac dug out again the wells that were dug during the lifetime of his father Abraham. The Philistines had closed them up after Abraham's death. Isaac gave them the same names his father had given them, 
Isaac's servants dug wells in the valley and found a well there with fresh water. Isaac's shepherds argued with Gerar's shepherds, each claiming, This is our water. So Isaac named the well Essek, because they quarreled with him. They dug up another well and argued about it too, so he named it Sitna. He left there and dug another well, but they didn't argue about it, so he named it Rehoboth and said, Now the Lord has made an open space for us and has made us fertile in the land. Then he went up from Gerar to Beersheba. The Lord appeared to him that night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Don't be afraid because I am with you. I will bless you and I will give you many children for my servant Abraham's sake. So Isaac built an altar there and worshipped in the Lord's name. Isaac pitched his tent there, and his servants dug a well. But Abimelech set out toward him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his ally, and Fickle, the commander of his forces. Isaac said to him, Why have you come after me? You resented me and sent me away from you. They said, We now see that the Lord was with you. We propose that there be a formal agreement between us, and that we draw up a treaty with you. You must not treat us badly, since we haven't harmed you, and since we have treated you well at all times. Then we will send you away peacefully, for you are now blessed by the Lord. Isaac prepared a banquet for them, and they ate and drank. They got up early in the morning, and they gave each other their word. Isaac sent them off, and they left peacefully. That day Isaac's servants informed him about the well that they had been digging, and said to him, We found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the city's name has been Beersheba until today. When Esau was forty years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Basamoth, daughter of Ellen the Hittite. They made life very difficult for Isaac and Rebekah. So here we have these sort of three different stories here that are sort of strange in, in this way. First off, that we have this almost copy and paste promise from God, that this promise would be fulfilled from Abraham to Isaac. Then we have the story of Isaac selling out his wife because he doesn't want to get killed. That's almost copied and pasted from Abraham twice. Um, and that the, <laughs> the authors have to clarify, it's a different famine from the first famine where the, this happened for the first time. Um, and, and then this story about the Philistines, where again, Isaac is repeating the things that Abraham had done over and over again. And then right at the end, the strange statement that Esau's wives made life very difficult for Isaac and Rebecca. Yeah. You know, as I was reading the story and thinking, where do I know the Hittites from? And I was thinking, it's Uriah the Hittite, who David mm-hmm. sends to the front lines to die. Mm-hmm. David also defeats Goliath, who is a Philistine, right? So years later, it's these same characters replaying the same story. Absolutely. I love that connection. In that story, David is the one who's supposed to be you know, God's favored one, but right. he is serving the same function as Abimelech um, and reversing the story. And it's so interesting that Bathsheba's name is literally related to this text, Beersheba yes! and Bathsheba. <laughs> it, but isn't that wild? I, it, like, and also reading these stories that they, there is a relatable element that over 2000 years later, yeah, in some cases much longer, these characters still feel very real. Even though we have a different culture and, you know, I mean, it's hard not to read this and think, wow, this is a lot of toxic masculinity. You know, you're not protecting your wife, (laughs) but you're making sure nobody else can have her and you're going to say she's your sister because if they think they can sleep with her, you know, they won't kill you to have the right to, you know, that kind of stuff is so, is rough. And I know that 
it was a different cultural milieu. And yet there's still some of that, like, you know, this is my land, not your land. This is my woman, not your woman kind of thing. Well, and like the, the connection between the names, right? Bathsheba being the daughter of the oath, Beersheba being the well of the oath. And as we have previously established, the well being a yonic image, right? Of like, what is mine and what is yours? You want to explain to the audience what a yonic image is? <laughs> yes. So a yonic image is uh, just like phallic image evokes images of the penis. Uh, yonic imagery instead evokes images of the vagina. And so you have oftentimes phallic and yonic imagery in the Bible in contradistinction to each other, right? Where in the Song of Solomon, you talk about um, my lover's great tower and my lover's deep well, right? And so those two images are deeply embraced with each other, right? We talk about the Tower of Babel trying to reach up to God, trying to say, I have a bigger dick than God. And of course, God doesn't have a penis. (laughs) I... I think so. Uh, God destroys the Tower of Babel because God doesn't have a penis, and you don't need to have a penis to be powerful. Right. Um, <laughs> Which we learn from Jesus later on as Christians. But, the, right? Yes. Y- yeah. Some will become eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. But the, yeah, but it's also this idea that they have to send him away because he's too powerful. Mm-hmm. So he's an immigrant that they welcome. Which I think is also very interesting because we think about Isaac as, you know, one, Isaac and Rebecca as some of the like historical family of the faith, right? These great, powerful characters. And, but they were immigrants escaping famine. Mm -hmm. They become so successful that the people in charge of the land where they settle are like, all right, you got to go. And and I don't know (laughs) if it's because they're making them look bad, you know, or they're, they're worried that they're going to take it over, which I mean, according to the Bible, they did. But I think that's really interesting. And they're like, Hey, you know, you settled out here and we're going to do a treaty with you. Yeah. <laughs> well, and let's, let's, I think if we go a little bit piecemeal by the story, that we'll see how all those themes fit together in a really interesting way. So, first, again, we have this covenant that is all about how, because of the agreement that God had made um, with Abraham, what our, our dear friend L will always call uh, God's first friend. This is interesting because this is not a relationship that God is developing with Isaac because Isaac is cool. Like this is a relationship that God is continuing explicitly because Abraham obeyed me. And so like another family kept up this relationship and now they're family. Mm, I love that. <laughs> yeah. It's a commitment, right? And then it immediately goes into the most important commitment that Isaac made in his life other than with God. And just totally betrays that commitment. <laughs> Are you talking to Rebecca? Yeah, where like Isaac is supposed to be committed to to Rebecca, who he absolutely loves. But we do know that he was older. Yeah, and that she was exceptionally beautiful. But instead of protecting her, or fi- but but this may be part of it, right? He's out of options. He is an immigrant. Mm. There's a famine. Like, and if on the one hand he could let people abuse his wife. And he can live or he can die and then they will also hurt his wife, you know? So like I can mm-hmm. see how sometimes when you're in a desperate situation, you might make a, a, a decision that from the outside we, we perceive as like, wow, that's really horrible. But he was, it was a survival decision, I think. It's a survival decision that is again made in the midst of these people that Isaac seems to have no expectation of respecting him, right? Like uh, Abraham 
Abram didn't expect the Egyptians to to allow him to live when he went there, which says something about the hospitality of the Egyptians in this conception, right? And then Abraham, after his name is changed, and he goes back to the Philistines, and and it is the same King Abimelech, right? Um, <laughs> it, it, it's funny how similar these stories, including like the same name of the king. <laughs> well, right, well, that's just the um, name of the Philistine king. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> it means son of a king. Yeah, it's like calling someone Pope or King of England, like Abimelech is just King of the Philistines, basically. It's not just a proper name. We don't know his proper name, but I think, you know, that was his title and that's what people called him. Yeah, but it, it's funny. King, King, son of a king, right? right? <laughs> so, um, it's a, it's like, a guy with power in the area, but clearly they had rules about sleeping with people's wives. But it is possible that because she was an attractive woman and because, I mean, it is possible they would have just taken him out. I mean, that, that, like, if that's, a, if that's a reality, how much, like, that totally changes the way I think about the situation that they were in and how desperate it was. Yeah, but, like, I love that point that, like, Abimelech has a morality here. Oh, right? yeah. He says that one of my people would have slept with your wife and you would have made us guilty, right? And like he acknowledges that he has an obligation to not sleep with a married woman, not to that take advantage been, would that of, have been of the situation. His fault? That's what's funny. Like one of yeah. us would have slept with your wife without her permission. And then like that would have been your fault, husband, for not telling us <laughs> that you were married. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't pick up on that. Um, (laughs) See, this is why people who are traditionally trained as men need people who are traditionally trained as women to help read the Bible with us, because we miss these things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it isn't, it isn't, we would have married your wife, and we would have been guilty of that. It is, we we would have slept with your wife without her her permission. Yeah. And I I mean, I don't think she had a lot of power in this situation either. And I think that's unfortunately true of a lot of people who are immigrants who are fleeing violence and, and famine and what, whatever um, your options are limited. And so they were trying to survive. Uh, How so you have some yeah. compassion for them, but also obviously he knows the story of his father. I'm mm-hmm. sure his dad told him these stories growing up, by the way, we went to Egypt and I lied and said, your mom was my sister. <laughs> and then all these terrible things happened. Ha 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 ha. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, don't ever do that. And Isaac's, well... Yeah. Do you think Abraham would have been ashamed of that story and to not told Isaac this story and then go and see his kid fall into the exact same pattern? Now, we know that Ishmael was there for his dad's death, too. Yeah. Or, uh, Isaac and Ishmael get back together to bury their father. But I, I think it's hard to imagine... Like right now, we're in the midst of a drought where I live in New Mexico, and yeah. water is life. We say that all the time. And to imagine, you know, his emphasis on digging wells and they had to leave because there's a famine, like he was starving. His family was starving. Yeah. It's hard to imagine being in that kind of a desperate situation. And yeah. I think that adds a layer to this that um, is important for us to think about people who are crossing into the United States across the Arizona and New Mexico desert and and what kind of what are they experiencing? And what does yep. it mean for them to be welcomed into a land? And and would we try to take advantage of people? Well, like we do every day, right? Like yeah, like we do. our economy is is based on the exploitation of migrant workers, right? Like we have a special 
we have a special minimum wage that is far below other minimum wages because we expect immigrants to come up and fulfill those roles, right? Yeah. And we're not willing to pay them what they deserve to do it after we've crashed their economy, which we've done so that they would come up and pick our fruit for us. You know, like uh, there, there are these cycles that we've gotten into that mean that we are treating people unjustly. And it's a cycle that we see happening in this story as well. Yeah. So imagine, right, somebody coming up from Honduras or Guatemala or Colombia. And um, I just talked to somebody a couple days ago and they're working construction. They they don't have their documentation yet. They're an asylum seeker. They're in the process. Um, they get paid $400 to work 12-hour days for six days a week. Oh. Uh, $400 a week. Oh, goodness. For six days of hard labor. Yeah. Right. But what, but what other options do they have? You know? Um, and they get sent places like last week they were sent to Colorado for a week with this company and they just mm. kind of sleep out in these little, like basically in the field, like they don't have housing or food anyway, but that's a reality in my backyard. And so what does it mean to provide hospitality? And then imagine that that young person becomes so powerful that the United States is like, okay, now you got to get out. <laughs> <laughs> We're threatened by you mm-hmm. because that's what I hear. Honestly, right. The immigrants are taking our jobs. They're taking over. Um, we'll, we'll set you up real nice on just on the other side of the border. Yeah, absolutely. And, and presumably it, Isaac had lost everything in this family, yeah. right? Where like Abraham yeah. had been a very wealthy man and uh, presumably in this famine, Isaac doesn't, isn't able to uh, survive anymore and so has to go and live with the Philistines and presumably loses all of that wealth that he had previously accumulated. And here, instead of him getting wealth because the Egyptian pharaoh feels guilty about trying to take his wife as his wife, um, <laughs> instead Isaac is, you know, this is the Isaac pulls himself up by the bootstraps um, kind of lesson but it is explicitly not <laughs> because uh, he pulled himself up by the bootstraps. I mean, he's wealthy enough to have servants. The guy yeah. is not destitute, at least in time, right? Like, I, I don't know. Like, I've been watching people, I think it's in Vietnam, b- digging a well over yeah. the <laughs> on TikTok. I go, they go live every day and they show their progress as they dig a well. I don't know if you've seen this. Well, but it's months and months and months yeah. to dig a well. It's not just, you know. They don't have a giant drill. And so also, even though this takes place over a chapter, I have to remember that this is a very long time. So when they first arrived, they probably had nothing. But, you know, they dug a well. They found water, which is incredibly valuable. Um, He probably learned from his father some of the agricultural skills. And this whole story is a reminder of Genesis 11, where Abraham had so much wealth and Lot had so much wealth that they had to separate because they were abusing the land here, right? It's it's exactly the same argument where Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us because you've become too powerful among us, and the servants are fighting, and so they have to um, separate in this way. That's such a contrast to the United States. I can't help but, I mean, I know we have an international audience, but in the United States, the wealth gap is so massive. And no one said, uh, Jeff Bezos, you got to get out because you have too much money and you're not sharing it. (laughs) And so you're making the rest of us look bad. You know, the concept that a wealth gap is problematic for community is interesting to me. Mm, Absolutely. Well, because like here it is very explicitly 
that if you're gaining more, you are taking away from the resources that the rest of us use to survive, right? The water is something that's clearly tangible, that if you're taking up all the water, the rest of us don't get any of it, right? Whereas when we imagine the way that capitalism works, right, it's always interesting to point out to people that under capitalism, taxation is just a way of tampering down inflation. Like the reason that the wealthy are not taxed and the rest of us are is that we don't have enough money to start paying more for goods, right? Um, it, it's a it's a means of ensuring that inflation doesn't go off the rails because of all of us, if every single one of us had $70,000 to live off of a year instead of the closer to $40,000 that the average American family is living off of, then uh, we would be able to afford more things. Well, that means that the wealthy would not be as powerful, would not have as much of a hold on us. So inflation would go up so that our $70,000 is suddenly not worth as much money. So what happened with all the PPP loans. We put a ton of money back into the hands of American citizens and um, inflation started to rise. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's an oversimplification, but yeah, <laughs> but like, so we, we make up this imaginary thing called money and then we make an, make up an imaginary amount that it's worth. And, you know, Brennan Lee Mulligan from College Humor and, and Dimension 20 um, made this really good analogy where he was saying, okay, let's play the game of capitalism. And uh, if you are born rich, which you are not, um, <laughs> you, uh, if, if you get to determine how valuable something is, and if you have it, then it's something that's really valuable. But if someone else has it, it's really unvaluable, unless it's debt, in which case it is extremely valuable and people will never be able to get out of it, right? Where, yeah, <laughs> because money is a made up concept that that we all just buy into, the rich are able to manipulate the system and say, no, I'm not taking all of your money. I just have earned this somehow. Whereas here in this story, we see very explicitly Abimelech is saying, Isaac, your your greed, your your what this translates to as powerful in the in the CEB. I'm interested in seeing what other translations say here. Um, but it says that you have become too much for the rest of society. So you need to move away so that you're not causing the damage of the rest of us. And there was also sort of a societal damage that there was envy and infighting. And mm-hmm. you're like, how come he has so much? And yeah, he didn't need a hundred wells. Yeah. And water <laughs> is such a precious resource. There's some of us who walking around in the city of Albuquerque, if you're driving around and we see somebody with a bright green lawn, which is beautiful. Mm. But some of us feel this sort of like visceral, like anger. Yeah. About they're wasting water, that, you know, they're taking from other people um, and from the land. We need that water. Why are you, you know, most most of the yards in my neighborhood are just rocks because it costs so much to grow grass. So I can see how people would be like, you have so many wells and you're taking all the land and all of the resources and it's hurting our community. And so maybe it's not just toxic masculinity, like we're afraid you you're making us look bad, you yeah. know? <laughs> no, I, I think yeah. I think you're right on the money that it is very specifically, like you are becoming too much for us. You're far too big for us. Um and that word too powerful, um, like you are too powerful to fail, right? You're too big to fail, um, is, is how this is going. And so like Abimelech is acting as in this defensive manner and saying like, Hey, we got to protect what's ours because otherwise my people are going to die of thirst, you know? Um, and, and it's interesting that 
Isaac responds by naming these wells um, Essek, which is um, contention or argument, uh, Sitna, which means hatred, enmity. And only when they didn't argue about a well did he name a well uh, Rehoboth. This one word is supposed to mean the Lord has given us room and we will flourish in the land. Like that he's finally found a place where he can survive that doesn't threaten the other people that he lives around, and only when he finds the land that doesn't threaten all the people that he lives around does God come back and say, now I will give you many children uh, for my servants Abraham's sake. I do think the fertility thing is important because it mentions that they filled in the wells, mm-hmm. right? You don't fill in a well. Like, it is a useful tool. It takes so long to build a well and it's so much labor and it's so much work. And, you know, you may have to go super, super deep in certain places, especially in the desert. You you never know. And um, so you don't want to waste that resource. Mm-hmm. But filling it in, I think, is therefore symbolic of, of cutting off the fertility, right? Like yeah. you're, you're ending that line. Um, and so I think, yeah, it is impart an allegory about fertility and the fertility of the family and the continuation of the family as well. Well, and like, you know, if, if he's 40 when he got married and then 60 when he um, finally had kids, there's an interesting Mishnah where the rabbis are trying to figure out, like, what is going on here that it takes 20 years for Rebecca to be pregnant? I mean, that's a good question, right? And Sarah was very old when she got pregnant. I mean, they, there are definitely parallels. So what what did the rabbi say about why did it take 20 years? I mean, it's an allegory about the fertility of the land and their journey. And I mean, there are lots of possibilities. The Midrash are trying to figure out why the matriarchs are consistently having this problem of barrenness when like the whole point of the promise is that I'm going to bring you lots of kids. And then they keep having these problems where they seem to not be able to get pregnant. Well, first off, let's talk about the fact that what is the connecting feature here? The connecting feature is not that the women are related. (laughs) It's that the men (laughs) are genetically related to each other. That is an excellent point. So if it was a biological issue, it's that the men have trouble conceiving with the women. In fact, doesn't it say, there's some people believe that it was a miraculous conception between Sarah and God and that Abraham wasn't necessarily involved because it never says that they slept together. Yeah. There, there are some folks that, that make that argument. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's enough to say that like the problem does not seem to be with the matriarchs. It seems to be with the patriarchs, right? That this line of men have a problem with impotence and, um, and God comes in and intervenes. Well, how does God intervene? It's once again, as God El Shaddai, God the Almighty, God the many-breasted, the symbol of fertility that shows up and finally helps the matriarchs be able to have their children. According to the Babylonian tradition, Isaac and Rebecca didn't have children because Isaac was sterile. Mm. And the Mishnah mandates that if a man marries a woman and she hasn't given birth after 10 years, he's supposed to divorce her so that he can fulfill the commandment of procreation with another wife. But that's the be fruitful and multiply. Um, so the rabbis are puzzled by this Mishnah because Isaac was 40 when he married Rebecca. And when the twins were born, he was 60. So they lived together for 20 years without children. He didn't divorce her. And so the way that some folks have answered this question is that the infertility in this case wasn't Isaac's. Um, or it was Isaac's, and therefore there was no reason to divorce her. Mm. 
I, I think that also it's worth pointing out here that um, Isaac and Rebecca actually seem to fall in love with each other. Like, <laughs> mm, um, yeah, like Isaac and Rebecca seem to fall in love with each other in a way that no other straight relationship in the Old Testament and really, frankly, in the Bible um, really happens. Right. All that to say that this whole story is about Isaac like attempting to dig up these wells to bring about new life, to expand the wealth that he's already gotten. And the Philistines coming and filling them up because the Philistines are saying, well, actually, this is too much, right? This is too big. Mm. Um, This is too big already. And again, only after God says, like, I am going to give you many children, do these foreign powers, again, recognize the power of the Hebrew God, right? So first off, in the context of the story, right? Um, the people here are not monotheistic, right? Everyone in this story are polytheistic, right? In the ancient world, there isn't a concept of monotheism. It was developing in the Babylonian area the, with the development of Zoroastrianism. Now, some people will argue that um, Zoroastrianism is is not strictly monotheistic, but they think they are, and so I think they are because that's how they self-define. But in the ancient world, instead of talking about monotheism, we really have to talk about henotheism and monolatry. And monolatry, from my understanding, is more like there are other gods, but none of them are really worth my respect. The Philistines here are are expressing a, a very polytheistic view mm. that you have a God that is worth respecting mm. and that God isn't our God, but we, we realize that you're blessed. So we're going to stop this. Right. And it seems as though um, much of the old Testament is henotheistic that recognizes that there are other gods that are need to be respected, but that the editors are really monolatrists. <laughs> are really monolatrists. Well, and eventually mon- monotheistic, right? By the time yeah. Genesis is written down, monotheistic yeah. uh, religions are very prevalent in the area. So um, it's tricky. It's tricky. Yeah. But like it, the Bible shouldn't lead us to a conclusion that, that there is a set theology here, right? Like mm. there are disagreements within the text that cause us to lead to different conclusions and we can make different arguments based on that. Right. And that's just something that is true of so many of the things <laughs> that are true of the Bible. It's, right? it's, it's written by a lot of different people. And that's if, as we're reading Genesis, one of the fun things that happens is that you'll have two different stories about the same thing that are right next to each other and they won't totally agree. And our Jewish ancestors were totally okay with that. Right, it's only sort of 20th century that we are like there must be one voice. Mm-hmm. You know, this Bible was inspired by God, and so every single word is written from one perspective. And it's 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 actually a whole library of books. Yeah, um, and, and compiled over time in different cultures by different people. It's like you know, I think about like Supreme Court decisions, and we have the decision, and then we have the opposing view, and we publish all of that. Yeah. It would be as if people tried to read those 2,000 years from now and say, well, these are in agreement with each other. They're not. <laughs> but all of it is a valid like expression of how you're experiencing what's happening in the world. Well, and, and something we were talking about off mic earlier was the fact that like the book of Ruth is older than much of the book yeah. of Genesis, right? And the book of Ruth is all about how this Moabite woman is an outsider and yet becomes an insider 
because she is faithful, right? And here in this story, we have this little throwaway line right at the end that when Esau was 40 years old, he married these two Hittite women and they made life very difficult for Isaac and Rebekah, right? Which is like contradicting the whole story of Ruth. It's saying that outsiders are trouble and so therefore we shouldn't marry those outsiders when the whole point of this story is that Isaac was the outsider and they figured out a peace deal. <laughs> like They figured out a way to live together. But these outsiders, no, you can't. When you're in charge, you don't make the peace deals. You just say those are the dirty outsiders and we don't allow them in. And there were people who believe that. Yeah. Like if you compiled all stories about immigration right now and you put them all in a book, you would have stories saying all of what you just said. Yeah. And <laughs> and that is what the Bible is, is a series of sometimes contradictory claims about God and the people of God and how we're supposed to interact. But the thing that, that I come back to time and time again is St. Augustine's double rule of love, where what we know about God fundamentally is that God is a being of love, that God is love. And so when we read these stories, we have to interpret it from the double rule of love. Does this interpretation of this story help us love God more? Does our interpretation of this passage help us love our neighbor more? And if the answer to both of those is not yes, it's a bad interpretation and it has to be thrown out. And we have to come back to the text and keep reading until we figure out what it could be that this book is trying to teach us about how to love God and our neighbors better. And even if we don't like the characters and what they're up to, right? Yeah. Like, until we had talked today, I really hadn't thought about the desperation of Isaac and Rebecca as immigrants. Yeah. You know, and the choices that they made were not about Isaac being a toxic patriarch, mm -hmm. but about, I will not survive in this place where I'm a minority. Everybody else has a lot more power than I do. They're going to want to hook up with my wife. And if they think I'm married to her, they're going to kill me. And they may still try to hook up with her if I'm her brother, but... I will live. And, you know, God's commanded me to be the father of nations. And so like that, like, but to have compassion on Isaac to, in terms of, he had to be in such a desperate situation to make a decision like that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm interested in a, a further question here. Uh, who are the Philistines and where else do they show up? So we have the story of David and Goliath, where Goliath is a Philistine descended from Orpah, who <laughs> in my church Orpa, Orp, was one of the tiniest women I've ever met. Um, but, but she always said she was named after a woman who gave birth to a whole civilization of giants. Uh, so they're known for being giants, for being, you know, Goliath is one of them. There are eight battles between the Israelites and the Philistines in the Bible. The Philistines are this interesting role of, like, perpetual frenemies, where like, <laughs> they, right. there's there seems to be constant battle between the Philistines, who are these proto-Greek people that are coming into this area. Ironically, after the Israelite people have probably declared themselves an independent people from the Canaanites, like so, so we're talking mythologically that the Philistines were here when. Isaac is here and Abraham are here, right? But actually, the Philistines probably only arrived in about 1200 um, BCE, and the Israelites... But the biblical narrative does not match the archaeological narrative yeah. in a lot of places. Um, and that's because we tell the stories of our origins in ways that are mythical and that make us look good. And 
throughout a lot of history, Israel was occupied by other people. And so, but the biblical narrative is written as if the people of Israel are the occupiers and the victors, when in reality, that was not the case. In terms of a lot of the biblical battles, also, it's possible that the Israelites were not Right, there wasn't a mass exodus out of Egypt, and I'm sure we'll talk about that when we get into the the next thing. But the, you know that they there's actually a theory that they're closely related to the Hittites. Yeah, exactly. Like the the people of Israel probably come out of the Canaanites and come fr- from around these different areas, but they only really sort of start forming into a people group in about the 10th century BCE. So the Philistines are a little bit older than the people of Israel, but they're not that much older. <laughs> like, they're not right. all the way back in Isaac people land, right? And and people hook up with who they hook up with. I yeah. mean, it wasn't like, <laughs> you know, like, you, you ask most Americans what their heritage is, and most won't say, well, my ancestors are from Germany, or my ancestors yeah. are from Nigeria, or my ancestors are from, uh, you know, Japan. Most people will say, I'm part Irish, I'm part Native yeah. American, I'm part, Right. And we don't have that long of a history. So over thousands of years, there was a lot of mixing and there were a lot of different feelings about what that meant. Because um, when you mix, it has an impact on your culture and on your family, right? Like, obviously, there were family family members that didn't like the Hittite women. Yeah. But it might not be because they were Hittites. It might be because they were difficult. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and it's funny that Judith is one of the daughters who's a thorn in their side and her name is literally she will be praised right and basimoth yeah. is the sweet smelling or sweet smiling one right mm. and these are the people who became difficult for isaac and rebecca it's just this throwaway line at the end of the story that is all about progenity and how a people survive this terrible thing and god finally being faithful and then the people around them signing this treaty to to help them survive um, it's fascinating. But Esau is also <laughs> their firstborn, and he's the one who lost the birthright. Um, he was the hardworking guy out in the field, right? Like yeah. maybe the grief was actual grief that, like, our son is finally leaving us at forty, mm. you know, or he didn't fulfill what we thought of him. But it, it's interesting here that, like, the Philistines are just this generic other, right? To, to be compared to. It's, it's not quite the same as the Canaanites, right? The Canaanites with whom they know that there is some relationship, right? The Philistines get to be these outsiders, but who sometimes do good by the people of Israel and sometimes do not do good. This relationship that seems to be based on this little peace treaty ends up being a treaty that will be used to justify eliminating the Philistines. Um, you must not treat us badly since we haven't harmed you, and since we have treated you well at all times. Then we will send you away peacefully, for you are now blessed by the Lord. Well, how does that get defined when the Philistines come back and are trying to conquer them? Then the people of Israel say, well, you broke this treaty, right? And so we are justified in not treating you well, right? We're justified in all sorts of things that we want to do against you. They're a source of, the word for grief, it's, it is trouble and, and bitterness. So it's from the same, you know, Mara, yeah. like Naomi, back to the story of Ruth and Naomi, <laughs> <laughs> which keeps coming. I mean, this is what's so fun, right? So this is the line of David and, and you know, some of the other old stories in the Bible. But Naomi, her other name is Mara, which means bitterness. And that's the same root of the word here. They bring bitterness 
to Isaac and Rebecca? I mean, they've been through a lot, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. They've just seen the, the death of the patriarch of the family. They've gone through this famine. They've been able to rebuild these things and then had constant trouble with the neighbors who were trying to keep them from, you know, getting all these things right. But in part, because they were not able to recognize that they were taking up too much space, right? That they were taking up too much and weren't able to live within the bounds of what they needed and instead took too much. And it is retroactively justified by the redactors of the story by saying, he needs to have this much because I'm going to give you many children. And in a way, like this wealth is substituting for the lack of children right? Um, as a temporary way of saying, I'm going to give you something that matters a whole lot more than these things that you're distracted by at the moment. And ultimately that you think you're saving all of this up so that you can give this to Esau, but actually it's all going to be taken away by Jacob. And that is how the line is going to continue by the underdog, by the person who is not next in line, but instead by the person that God chooses, right? The person who would have been left out. You know, that is where I am just reminded that God is on the side of the immigrant, right? God talks for 2,000 verses throughout the Bible about how we are supposed to take care of people who don't have enough, who are poor. And almost as high of a priority in 400 verses throughout the Bible, the most commonly repeated phrase in the Hebrew Bible is, Remember the stranger, for you were once strangers in a strange land, right? It's not about love. It's not about anything else. It's not about some other value. It's not have no other gods before me. It's not I am who I am. It is hospitality. It is care for the immigrant. And that is a priority of God's. And God not only allows for the immigrant to um, just eke out a meager life here, God blesses the immigrant and the people who are native in that land see it as a threat and it becomes a nativist problem of trying to get rid of the people until they realize, oh, this person is blessed. And so we have to make peace with that blessing. Imagine what would have happened in the United States. I, I'm just thinking about when um, when the slaves were freed in the South. Mm. And of course, right, like slaves in the United States were given some food by the plantation owners, but they also learned how to live off the land and how to grow and plant and take care of themselves. And so when they were freed, they could live off the land. And that was a problem for the plantation owners who yep. could not. And so they were really upset. And so then they made it a crime to not be employed, right? All these loitering laws and all this kind of stuff, because, you know, the, the freed slaves could survive without uh, participating in sort of this capitalist uh, structure that had been set up um, and depended on slave labor. What would have happened had the plantation owners instead said, well, clearly you are blessed. So let's sign a treaty with you because we can see that God has found favor with you because you are thriving and God must love. I mean, that was the Protestant like misinterpretation of Calvin, right? Calvin never said that you're <laughs> a sign that you're going to heaven is that you have lots of money and mm-hmm. food. Protestants interpreted Calvin that way. Calvin just said, don't worry about your 
salvation. That's up to God. Yeah. Uh, but people misinterpret it as, as if you're doing well, God must love you. Mm-hmm. And I see a little bit of that in here. Oh, you you have lots of descendants and sheep and you found water. You know, your, your God must be powerful. What would have happened in the United States if plantation owners had been like, wow, y'all, God must love you because you figured out how to live off the land yeah. uh, and we are helpless. Well, and it's so important that like, Isaac moves away from the other people, right? He leaves Mm. them so that they have enough to take care of themselves and goes to this other place. And that is when God appeared to him, right? It's not that he, you know, is fighting all this way. It's that God has made an open space for us and has made us fertile in the land. God has allowed us to be in this other place. You know, the whole promise of 40 acres and a mule was so that people could have enough to sustain themselves, but instead, yeah. the greed of the already powerful was so great that we caused a system of oppression that didn't allow people yeah. to be free. And We started posting no trespassing signs. Mm-hmm. That wasn't a thing yeah. before the abolition of slavery. We, we started posting no trespassing signs so that people could not farm or walk across private land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you couldn't glean the fields, right? You couldn't yeah. pick up the stuff that the, the farmers had left behind, right? Yeah. So. Um, or we we still do that. The, there are movements of people who glean and they go into the fields and pick up what the machines miss, and then they offer that to the poor. Yeah, and that is a commandment from God, right? Like that is right. <laughs> that that is one of the things no, it is. baked That's... into ancient Israelite society that it is meant to be that when you have had enough, give the rest away, right? And instead, yeah. in, in American culture, we said. We can't even use all this land. We're going to claim it anyway, specifically so you can't, right? There is almost nowhere in the United States that you can go and just live as a free human being because there's always somebody else who has a deed to a parcel of land that they have not been to, that they they don't invest in, that they don't care about, but they have the deed and that's all that matters. And there are all these parcels of land surrounded by private land. Yep. So you can't get to the public land. So there's a lot of public land. Um, Bureau of Land Management is land, by the way, listeners, dear listener, if you are <laughs> traveling across the United States and you need a free place to camp or sleep, uh, most Bureau of Land Management, you know, if you don't want to sleep in a Walmart parking lot, which, you know. Has its own bag of problems. That's <laughs> <laughs> its own bag of problems. But if you're sleeping out under the stars in your sleeping bag or your tent, Bureau of Land Management is, is a place where you can stay. Yeah. Unfortunately, increasingly, people are buying up land around public land. So a lot of the public lands in the United States are no longer accessible because they're boxed in by private land. Yeah. Well, and all of this is to not even touch on the fact that the modern-day landlords are the equivalent of tax collectors in Jesus' time. But we're just going to leave that be for now and come back and talk about that on another episode. <laughs> so, yeah. Property is a whole other <laughs> a whole other episode. No, but, but, it, but it matters, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, we, we're also housing... So my church is a landlord, yeah. actually. Uh, we have people who are in the asylum process staying in the church. And what does that look like? How can we be good hosts to people, um, especially when we're not particularly culturally competent? And we're working on that, but you know, we feel called to create a safe space, and these people are in need of a safe space. Yeah. But what happens when things go sideways or when rules are broken? Do we take into account that they've been through trauma? What does trauma-informed care look like when you're a landlord? 
Yeah. There's a lot going on there, but I think this scripture really informs this idea that regardless, God is going to create space. And I think that's beautiful. And God is there blessing the people who our society has been left behind, right? Has left behind. And that is where Jesus shows up. And (laughs) that is the person who Jesus is, right? That Christ appears in, in the trans person who is being persecuted by the laws in their state as the Honduran immigrant who is running up here because the American government has overthrown their government so many times that there is no stability. Jesus shows up in the poor person who is homeless here in the United States. Jesus shows up as all of these people that we have left behind. Here in this story, we see God blessing Isaac in the midst of these difficulties. And Isaac grows so rich, but doesn't realize that his wealth is causing all of these problems and has to leave the land that had taken him in, the land that had blessed him. And only when he removes himself is he able to fulfill all of the blessing that God had in store for him. Yeah, he has to get out of the way. Yeah. Yeah, only when he leaves. Yes. That that sometimes the most faithful thing we can do is leave because we've become too big or too, like we're taking up the space. I. Um, my my spouse often says, you know, there's spaces where he go. He's a white cis man, yeah. uh, and you know, he said there's spaces where the best thing I can do is just be quiet or not show up. At, you know, just just get out of the way. That that sometimes that is. I mean, I love that Isaac moves on. So he finds this one well, and the shepherds say, "That's our water." And then they dig another well, and then somebody else disputes it, and finally he moves on and digs another well, and no one is fighting him over it. And he's like, ah, now God has given us room. Yeah. Well, and when you're not living in an area that has uh, a lot of free space, right? In Jesus's context, right? The, the only way for someone to move from Gerar to Beersheba, Jesus said for the wealthy people was to give up your wealth because your wealth is the thing that's crowding out space and not letting enough space for other people. Literally, like Zillow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, Zillow's buying up all these houses. We yeah. no, our our city council just passed a new rule that anybody basically they change zoning for the entire city, so you can build a second house on your property because we have such a shortage of market rate housing. Because in part because big companies have come in and they've bought up you know every house available between two hundred and four hundred thousand dollars in in an area and they've inflated the prices, people can't afford them, or they make them into Airbnbs. And so that's the other thing we're trying to pass is that you can't own more than three Airbnbs in the city. (laughs) But that's but seriously people will buy up if you have a ton of money, you can have twenty Airbnbs and hire a management company to own it. But then there's no housing for everyday people. So like there's literally no room. Yeah, absolutely. And like there's a direct correlation between housing prices and homelessness, right? An increase in value for some people is homelessness for others, right? And in my city, uh, we are seeing that continue to happen. And I work in homelessness. We can't afford to house new people because rents are going so high. The subsidies have not gone up. Our funding is not going up. And so we're not able to house people. But if we turned every Airbnb in the city into housing for people experiencing homelessness, we could see homelessness rise by 20% and we would still not fill all of the Airbnbs. And that size, that taking up of space, Jesus says the only way you can no longer be too big 
The only way you can fit through the eye of the needle is by giving all of that up. And it's tough because people think, but I earned this, I invested it. And that's true for a lot of people. They worked really hard for that money and they're being smart about investing it in real estate, but it's not all about them. Mm. And and that's what I hear in this story with Abimelech saying, you, you got to go because yeah. you're hurting the community, right? It, like just because you can doesn't mean you should. Acquiring wealth for the sake of acquiring wealth is wonderful and it's good protection for your descendants and all this kind of thing. But at what cost and what kind of world do you want your descendants to live in? Do you want your descendants to live in a world where there are so many homeless people because they can't afford housing as a result of your accumulated wealth? Well, and once again, we will see that <laughs> that inheritance divides families, right? Where you've, you've yeah. been smart with your wealth um, means that Esau and Jacob, because Jacob cheats Esau out of this wealth, that they no longer have a relationship for most of their lives, right? Where the wealth gets in the way, what yeah. we as humans often think of as a blessing, as a sign of, you know, that we're going to heaven, like, uh, like people who misinterpret Calvin say, we interpret it that way, but it leads to broken relationships. It leads to harm. It leads to hurt. It not even talking about all the other people that that wealth is taken from, right? Not even right. talking about the fact that a that Isaac here is taking all the water from everyone else, right? Yeah. And I don't think that people think about wealth as a fixed resource, and yeah. maybe that's part of the challenge. And I think that's one of the things I like about this passage is talking about the water, which is a finite resource. Yeah. And the land, it's yeah. a finite resource. Um, and so the more land you own, the less land other people can. Yeah. Well, and like, I I don't even like talking about it in terms of a fixed resource, because if yeah. if all of the wealth in the world was divided among all of us, there would be more than enough, right? There would be abundance. Right. I love on TikTok, the the farmers who say, let's go deal with the abundance, right? Um, I have a Mm. tiny little garden and yet I am dealing with abundance all the time. I have to give away all my squash because there's no way I could eat all the squash that my my tiny little squash plant produces, right? How do we deal with abundance when we see ourselves as having just enough to do our family and then everything else is abundance, everything else is extra, everything else is to be shared, rather than yeah. just for me to accumulate and keep for myself. All right. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show. It is always a pleasure to have yeah. you. And thank you, dear listener, for being a part of this uh, conversation that continues to go on. I hope that you will join us on the Discord and uh, and come and talk to us about building communes and building communities where people are able to live into their full selves. And now, Pass Micah. Amen. <laughs> now, Pass Micah, take it away. Thank you, Future Micah, and of course you, our wonderful listener. Together we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at the word in black and red at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past Micah. Now go. And recognize the blessing we have been given. Not so that we take up too much room, but so that we can share it with each other. Shalom. Shalom.